You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Well, good morning. So, um, yeah, I'm Pastor John. So if you have any of those emails that Dana just mentioned, it's J-O-N at liberty.org. I'd be glad to have those conversations with you. Um, Especially if you're uh, interested in baptism, we'd love to uh, begin those conversations soon. Um, Love to talk to you about that. We're very excited about those who are uh, coming to be baptized, and uh, we're going to rejoice with them on that day. So if you have your Bibles, grab them. Uh, We are going to be in Matthew chapter 18. Uh, If you have one of those black hardback cover Bibles, uh, we're going to be on page 823. As we're drawing near to the end of our summer series, um, we come to a topic of the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God uh, is a theme that will run throughout all of Scripture, yet specifically and explicitly uh, it is talked about by Jesus uh, himself in the Gospels. In fact, the word kingdom it's, uh, is used about 103 times in the Gospels, where it's only used 27 more times throughout the rest of the New Testament. So the kingdom of God is a, uh, is a, is a theme that we're going to be discussing this morning um, that Jesus is very, very excited about and wants us to know about. And so we will uh, cover that. Uh, there is a joke that says, uh, how do you know if someone is a vegan? And you can also replace, like, involved in CrossFit or something like that. How do you know that person is a vegan? Don't worry, they'll tell you. Um, you, don't have to, you don't have to figure it out. There's not some kind of external uh, evidence of their veganness or their, well, CrossFit, there probably is a little bit of an external uh, evidence of that. Um, but don't worry, they'll tell you. They'll tell you that they are because they love to talk about it. And in, in the same way, um, Jesus loves the kingdom. Uh, He loves his kingdom, and he wants to tell us about it. And so, uh, as we are looking this morning at Matthew chapter 18, we are going to hear one of the many times that Jesus talks about his kingdom, uh, because he is excited about his kingdom. He wants us to know about his his kingdom. Uh, But kingdom, if I can be completely honest, is somewhat a foreign concept. Uh, We do not live in a monarchy. There was a, a little skirmish that happened almost 250 years ago uh, between us and an island off of uh, the European continent called England that said, we do not like monarchies, nor do we want to be a part of one. Um, and so this, uh, this war, this revolutionary war took place. And so uh, for us, especially as Americans, especially as uh, people who live uh, in, in, in the western part of our hemisphere, uh, kingdoms are a it's, a, it's a difficult concept to, to wrap our minds around. We don't have much of a context for kingdoms. Uh, there are actually only a handful of monarchies still in existence in the world today, uh, most of those being uh, in the Middle East. And so we are uh, away from those. We, we don't have much of a concept of them. And so when Jesus talks about his kingdom, uh, we, we, we need to pause a little bit. We need to pause and, and, and try to understand the, the contextualization 
of what a kingdom is and what a kingdom means and what to be uh, what a, uh, the the intent of Jesus's statements um, mean for us. And so um, Jesus comes and he talks about his kingdom. Um, and he didn't come from a boring place. He came from heaven to talk about this kingdom that he has established uh, and that he will establish here on earth. Our doctrinal confessional statement will say this, and I'll read this to you, and we'll jump into our text. You can follow along on the screen behind me. This is what we, what we believe on the kingdom of God. We believe the kingdom of God is this. We believe that those who have been saved by the grace of God through the union with Christ by faith and through regeneration by the Holy Spirit enter the kingdom of God and delight in the blessings of the new covenant, the forgiveness of sins, the inward transformation that awakens the desire to glorify, trust, and obey God, and the prospect of the glory yet to be revealed. Good works constitute indispensable evidence of saving grace, living as salt in the world that is decaying and light in a world that is dark. Believers should neither withdraw into seclusion from the world nor become indistinguishable from it. Rather, we are to do good to the city. For all the glory and honor of the nations is to be offered up to the living God. Recognizing those, those created uh, recognizing whose created order is this, and because we are citizens of God's kingdom, we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, doing good to all, especially those who belong to the household of God. The kingdom of God, already present, yet not fully realized, is the exercise of God's sovereignty in the world toward the eventual redemption of all creation. The kingdom of God is an invasive power that plunders Satan's dark kingdom and regenerates and renovates through repentance and faith the lives of individuals rescued from that kingdom. It therefore is inevitable and inevitably establishes a new community of human life together under God. This is what we have gathered through the scriptures about the kingdom of God. And so let's look at our passage now. Matthew chapter 18, again, page 823 in the hardback Bibles in front of you. Matthew 18. At this time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like a child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives such a child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptation to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands and two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. 
And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell's fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, uh, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Then Peter came up to him saying, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And I forgive him. As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts with his servant. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payments to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe me. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When the fellow servants saw that he had, what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported it to their master, all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, the master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do pray as Christ has taught his disciples that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, as your gathered people today, here and all across the world, Lord, would we catch a glimpse of that truth Lord, would your word illuminate our hearts and minds by the power of the Holy Spirit that we would 
We'll be led into this truth this morning. It is for your namesake and your glory we pray. Amen. When we uh, discuss the kingdom of God, now, and you will see the kingdom of God and, and the kingdom of heaven used simultaneously um, throughout the New Testament, uh, referring to the same kingdom. Uh, when we see the kingdom of God, we, we would be remiss if we did not first focus in on the king. Uh, for there is no kingdom without the king. It is, it, is, it is a necessary prerequisite that a monarch be in place for a kingdom to, to be um, functioning and operating as it should. Um, the good news is when we talk about the kingdom of God, God is uh, not one who passes away but is eternal and therefore his kingdom is eternal. So we must first talk about the king. And, and here in Matthew 18, we get glimpses of who this king is. We get, uh, a look, we get to know and, and, and distinguish uh, from the rest of, of creation who this king is and what he is like. So let's take a look quickly at, at some of these characteristics of this king, this king of the kingdom of heaven. Verses 5 and 6. Whoever receives such a child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little to stumble who believe in me, um, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. And even prior to that, as Jesus is talking about this child, we see the gentleness of this king. We see Jesus um, in the midst of his disciples, grown Men having a conversation there in, uh, uh, in, in Peter's hometown. And, and they're having a conversation probably right outside of the synagogue where, where most people would gather. And, and there in Capernaum, uh, they're, they're gathered, they're having these, these deep conversations. We see previously in chapter 7, uh, just moments before, tax collectors coming. So there's there's, there's a lot happening. There's important people around. Um, and we see Jesus having this conversation, and they're asking the question, who's the greatest in the kingdom? And what we see about Jesus is that he brings in front of them not, not a tax collector, not a, not a priest, not the most important person in the town. And he brings in front of them a child. This is, to understand contextually, and, and I would say even today, um, you know, children, children are important to us. But if we were to, to say, what, you know, who is the greatest? We wouldn't be bringing up a child to say, this is the example of who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This is, this is counterintuitive to how we would operate and how, honestly, that culture at that time would operate. Um, unless you owned land and you were a male heir, um, your value in that system was not very high. And so to bring a child up and to sit this child in front of these men is, uh, is a picture of who God is. One, it's a picture of who Jesus is, this king who 
who comes to establish his kingdom here is one that, that calls a child. And the child responds and comes and sits. He's not, a, he's not someone who is harsh or demanding. He's not someone who is uh, overbearing or whose presence does not uh, elicit um, this desire to, to be around, this attractiveness. No, he is exactly that. So much so that the, the children come to him. We see in other points throughout the Gospels when Jesus is sitting, children are running up to Christ. The disciples try to stop them, saying, hey, look, these, you've got more important things to do, Jesus. You've got, you've got miracles to make happen. You've got, uh, you've got sermons to preach. You've got issues to deal with. You don't have time for kids. And the, and the disciples try to stop these children. And this is a picture of who our king is, is the one who says, no, let the children come to me. Let them come and be in my presence. The one who holds them and cares for them and loves them. Because he loves us. And he sees us as his children. This is the beauty of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who comes to establish his kingdom. It's, it's not just that, that we are servants in the kingdom, but we are sons and daughters of the king. And so he wants the children to come. And he uses the child as the example. He uses the child as the example of, of the greatest. Is, is, is to be the one who humbles themselves. The disciples must not merely humble themselves, but they must welcome all who humble themselves as believers. For as he says in verse 4, for whoever humbles himself like this child, he goes on to say, um, is naturally uh, a disciple. He's the one who, who welcomes others, seeing them as another child. It's, it's fun to be back in, the, the, in our children's area in the back and see the kids play together. The older they get, like, the more, um, I don't say jaded, but the more like us they become. And so, like, the younger children, you put them in a room, and, I mean, you've got your kids who are going to play by themselves, but, but there's, no, there's no system of, like, who's better at this or who's better at that. They all just play together. Everyone is, is equal. Everyone has something to contribute Everyone is, is fun. There's, there's no animosity built up between children of that age. And the beauty of this is that this is, this is how God sees us and how we should honestly see others who are believers in Christ, regardless of, of background or race or nationality or socioeconomics. Too many times we put way too many barriers between each other. I know I've done it in my own heart and in my life. You look at someone and you're like, I just don't think we're going to be friends. You know, I have something, something about you. You're wearing ice cream cones or something on your shirt. <laughs> Haven't quite figured it out yet, but there's no doubt we're not going to be friends now. Um, like, it's just weird, right? Why would you do that? And so, like, we've, 
we put these barriers up between one another um, for no particular reason other than pre, pre, preconceived notions about someone else. But this is not how God has called us as the king to live. Who would refuse a child? Who would refuse helping a child is what Jesus is asking. There's a, there's a story recently, you may have seen this, I, th- I believe it was last, last year, last December. Uh, Irina Ivick is a, is a city bus driver in Milwaukee. All right? It's December 22nd in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which, having not been there before, just the sounds of it, December 22nd, it's cold outside. I believe there's ice and potentially snow on the ground. Could be, I'm not sure. But it's cold outside, no doubt. Um, She's driving her route, and then she stops her bus, pulls it over onto the side of the road, not at a stop, not where she's supposed to stop, but she stops and she gets out. Now, I don't know if there was anyone on board, but you can imagine what someone's thinking when your, your bus, your, your source of transportation just stops, and then your bus driver gets out. Either you're getting out, depending on how panicked that individual is, or you're just really confused on what's going on. So this bus stops, Irina jumps out, she runs down the road, because she sees, um, she sees a, a one-year-old in a onesie running down It's an overpass of a highway running down this street. Um, So she goes and she stops. She gets the child and brings him back into the heat of the bus. Um, Who would refuse a child? Who would refuse a child, especially a child in need, a child desiring to be uh, held and cared for and provided for? And that is us. That is us. That is everyone who comes and humbles themselves in front of the Father. Everyone who comes and humbles themselves before God are children of God. So let us, friends, as no matter where we come from in, in this area, no matter where we come from from a background standpoint, we all come from the same place as needy children in need of our Father to hold us, to warm us, to provide for us. Because we, as a child, can do nothing to provide for ourselves. We can do nothing to clean ourselves, to feed ourselves. It is only when we get older and we begin to believe the lies of self-satisfaction and self-care and self-provision that we start to push God away, thinking that we can take care of ourselves. I can, I can make enough money. I can have enough friends. I can keep myself occupied enough to not have time for God. This is why Jesus puts the child in front of the disciples. This is our king. He also goes on in 12 through 14, talking about who he is as as the shepherd of us, as a shepherd. If a, if a man has sheep, a hundred sheep on the mountaintops and one runs away, one runs astray, does he not leave the 99 and go after the one? And this, this is a picture of Christ who leaves heaven, 
who comes down to come after the lost sheep, that he may rescue them and save them and redeem them. This is our king who steps down, who condescends, becoming creation to save us. This is the king who traded his throne for a crown. John Piper says this. He says, no, he came to be crucified. He didn't come uh, to, to be put on a throne yet. He would only be a king through the crucifixion and resurrection. The disciples should scarcely comprehend that. And sometimes we don't comprehend that ourselves. We would want, as the disciples, if Jesus, if we were in the same spot, we would not want Christ to go to the cross. We would want him to establish his kingdom and rule and reign. Because if he's ruling and reigning now means that basically if we follow him, like we, we don't have any problems, we don't have any issues, we don't have to deal with the, uh, the depths and depravity of sin. But he comes, he comes for the cross, not for the throne. The disciples, the disciples would not understand this until later. But this is our king. This is our king who chases after the one who goes astray. And maybe that's you. And maybe that's you right now. And you're running. And you're trying to get away. You're running down the mountain, away from the sheep, from the other sheep. You've been hurt. You've been lied about, and maybe that's you. Let me tell you, our king, our king is chasing after you. And he wants you to stop running and to come back. To come back and enjoy his presence. Come back and to be with him. Let him do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Let him save you, restore you, redeem you, give you hope, and give you a future. Dear friends, stop running. Stop running in your job. Stop running in your relationships and in your marriage with your children. Stop running. Turn around. The Savior is right behind you. He is on your heels. He is the hound of heaven chasing after you. Stop running. This, even in just an 18, is a, is a quick glimpse of who this king, who rules this kingdom is. And if you have a king and you have a kingdom, you have kingdom economics. There's an economy of what is valuable. There's an expectation. There's a way of living that God has established that is right and good in his kingdom. And everything he does and everything he establishes is because he loves his people. He loves his children. He does not set up for them rules and expectations that are, that are uh, not helpful for them, that would not bring them uh, to fulfillment, would not bring them hope or joy or peace. No, he establishes for us his children, an economy, a kingdom economy. 
It's important for us to know this because in knowing how God works in his kingdom, we know the nature and character of God. And God's true ruling power is absolute. Unlike us who uh, we think our power is absolute, mostly, mostly at home. Men, can we be honest for a moment? When you get home, like you have expectations of what things are supposed to be like. Time, you know, look, it's Thursday night. Football's coming on the TV. It's coming. We're close. Guys, we're close. Preseason doesn't really count. Not really great games, but we're close. Thursday night, Saturday, Sunday, if you're a football fan, it's a very exciting time of the year. But you have, you have expectations of what uh, your house is like, what, what you want your, uh, your property to look like, what you, how you want your kids to respond and behave. Right? I, I, have, I have expectations of my children. My wife and I have set these things up in our household of like, hey, we don't want you throwing balls against the wall. Like this sound, not cool, not inside. Go outside. But don't throw it against the house wall because I'll still hear it. Like go find the neighbor's house. Do it somewhere else. Like we have expectations. We, you know, there's, there's no jumping on our furniture, right? Um, our, our couch is kind of set up in the middle of our living room and there's the back. We do not get on, they're not quite tall enough yet but they're trying. We do not get onto our couch from the backside of the couch, right? I've, I've been tempted to do it a couple times, but I'm like, they're gonna watch me and then they're gonna do it. So like, like we have expectations, right? Of like how to, how to sit at the table, where we sit at the table. Even last night, my three-year-old, I sit at the head of the table, my children sit to the left on the bench, one of them is allowed to sit next to mom, right? Mom sits next to me, this is how things work. A three-year-old setting the table, putting the, putting the plate down, does one of these things, comes to my seat. I'm not sitting down yet. Starts to get up in my seat. I was like, no, no, that's not where you sit. He says, I want to sit here. I was like, no, this is where dad sits. This is where mom sits. You guys get to sit around us. But like, like every, house is, every household is different, right? Every household is different. Every household is, uh, has expectations and rules and, and things that we want to follow that, that allow our castle, our kingdoms to run in an appropriate way, right? You all have them. Um, and if you have children and you've ever gone to someone else's house, that is probably one of the most stressful things, at least like the first visit. You go to someone else's house. We have a family member who will remain nameless for the sake of this being on a podcast. Um, <laughs> When we first, like our children were like moving, we have a family member who's like not familiar with little kids, right? Knows of them, was very excited for us. This is a relative. Um, but like their house was not, it's not kid friendly, it's a good word. It's not kid friendly. There's, there are things made of glass that are low and expensive, right? breakable things. They have things that can be thrown, right? This is, this is not one of those environments where I'm happy to take like a three-year-old who's just figuring out life and who's already thrown a remote at my TV and broke it. <laughs> not comfortable, right? 
And so like, like going into someone else's kingdom and someone else's space can be, can be difficult. It can be difficult to, to feel that out and know what's going on. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, maybe you're new to the faith or, or maybe you're reading your Bible for the first time. You're starting to see things and feel things out that are different and they're a little difficult. And you think there's a lot of glass around that can be broken. And you're like, I'm going to break that one. That's broken. I broke that last night. I broke that this morning. Like things are, things are breaking in God's kingdom and I broke them. And so like, like you work into these situations, but, but let, me, let me tell you, friends, this kingdom that God has established is for our good and for our joy. It's for our good and for our joy. This is who Christ is in establishing his, his kingdom. He has this economy of what life in the kingdom is like. For instance, let's go back to verses 1 through 4. He says, who's the greatest in the kingdom? He points to the child. In the, in, in the kingdom economy, not prestige, not piety, not status, not access, now, these are, these are not things that, that establish greatness. The whole idea of greatness, the things that we would say are uh, make you great, make you stand out, would elevate you above maybe someone else. And we love to do that, don't we? We love to elevate ourselves. I love to elevate myself, right? To go, I'll take that. I'll do that. Look, look what I did, right? And we do this. And we think that it earns us something. Because that's how, that's how all of our, all the world works. But in God's economy, it's not, the, it's not the most prestigious person. It's not the one who gets everything right all the time. It's, it's the one who's humble. It's the one who comes humbly. We tell our children, it's not, um, it's not that you, you yelled at your brother, you you didn't fight with them. It's your heart towards your brother. It's your heart towards your brother that, that bothers me, son. We're, we're trying to go after the heart, and, and, and Christ comes after the heart, the intention. And in the Sermon on the Mount, I mean, we're talking a couple chapters before where we are right here today. Um, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. We would say, that's not how like, we would think things would work. We would say, blessed are like, the, the awesome in spirit, like the ones who are really good at being spiritual, really good at doing all the things. Like theirs is the kingdom of God. They did all the things right. But if they don't have the heart, the humility, God's economy is different. It's different. We've got to got to come into this understanding of who it is who's the, the king gets to establish these things god's economy is different the kingdom economy is different it is the upside down but a good one flips it the entire world on its head it transcends the kingdom of god transcends too let's, let's this is an important part of it it transcends locality economics regions countries, languages, nationalities, ethnicities. It transcends every human boundary. 
transcends everything. This economy is for all of us. It is not specific to, hey, this region, we want you guys to be humble. This region, we want you to be joyful. If you fall into this category, no, it's everyone. It's every person who operates in the kingdom of God has the same expectations. And yet we see men who are with Jesus asking the question, who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? They're asking, they want to know who the greatest is. They don't understand yet. They don't understand. So Jesus needs to teach them. And he goes on. And if you look with me, verse 21. He goes on asking about forgiveness. This is a very brother question. Um, I'm not sure. Like, so, so they're in Capernaum. This is Peter and Andrew's hometown. Um, and I'm not sure, like, if you ever go to Capernaum, they found... Um, they found the ruins of the temple that was in Capernaum, the synagogue that was there, and probably 30 yards in front of the, the, um, the synagogue is, is Peter's mother's house. Um, they believe this is, this is uh, Peter's mother's house by the, the size and the expansion that was built onto it and the amount of um, lanterns, oil lanterns, that were found in there. It was a place where they believe the early Christians met. Um, so you can imagine, like, Peter has this rush of like memories coming back of times that he and Andrew like got into arguments and um, you know maybe they're sitting in synagogue and Andrew like hip checks Peter off of where he was sitting in front of everyone and they're like Peter stop screwing around like stop shh be quiet we're in synagogue and so like these things are coming back and so Peter asks how many times do I have to forgive my brother Seven times, right? Seven times? That's what, that's what the law says. We need to forgive seven times. He says, no, 77 times. Children also are really great at forgetting how to count when you give them a high number. So this is a, this is a fatherly advice kind of thing. But he says this. He goes on to say, and he gives this, this parable, this parable of the servants. And the master, this one servant owed 10,000 Talents. A talent is the amount of money that someone would earn um, over the course of 20 years. 20 years wage, right? 20 years worth of wage is one talent. That's a lot of money. Uh, if we go off of the, the modern economics, I think they said like 56000 was an average salary um, in the United States, the average annual salary. Uh, so we'll take 50 because that's a rounded number and we can get even numbers. Um, so 50 years, $50,000 $50, over 20 years, that's one talent. So 10,000 of those is $11 billion. $11 billion. Dude owed some money, right? He, he's in debt. He started gambling on football. This is what happens. So he owed a lot of money to the point where he's like, I, there's no way I can repay it. And the law of the land was like, you get thrown in jail until you can repay it. Everything gets taken from you. You become an indentured servant. And the, and, and the master forgives the debt. He forgives the debt. This tells us a couple things. One, in, in God's economy, he can forgive debts like that. He can forgive debts like that. But two... Um, 
It tells us how much he loves his children. And yet, in the ways that we do, the same servant who was forgiven of so much, so much, goes back and he finds another servant who owes him a hundred denarii, which is one, a denarii is one day's wage. So doing all that math, a hundred denarii, $13,000. $13,736, roughly, right? $13,000. He was just forgiven 11 billion, and he's going and he's shaking this guy down. I mean, literally shaking him, he says choking him for 13 grand. You see, the, the thing is, it's, it goes back to the heart issue. This first servant, the, the wicked servant, was probably, even throughout this entire time, holding with him resentment towards this man who owed him money. And the opportunity he had to go back and, and retrieve that, even after being forgiven of so much, he held onto that resentment to the point of, of not unforgiveness and, and hatred towards this one. The resentment overtook him and so that he tried to shake him down for $13,000. And what we see is, is, is the master come back and say, you've been forgiven of so much. What, what is this? What is this debt that you are owed? You should forgive others. And friends, in the, in the economy of God, there is so much forgiveness given. There is so much forgiveness given to us. Each and every one of us have been forgiven of debts that we, would, we are not able to pay. The only one who would be able to pay it is Christ, and he did, and he paid our debt on the cross through the death, burial, and resurrection. And so, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is, it's vast, it's glorious, and the greatest thing about the kingdom of God is it's where the king is. It's where the king has rule and reign. So as we think and consider the kingdom, let us have childlike dependence over our self-driven justification. Let us value purity more than prosperity. Let us look at sanctification done in community, not alone. And forgiveness. Let us offer forgiveness frequently and graciously as we have been forgiven. Because we have a gentle and kind king who loves us and yet deals with sin severely. But he is the humble servant who sovereignly reigns over us. So let's remember that. Be encouraged by it. And let us go to the table with that in mind. So Father, we, we give thanks. We give thanks because of your goodness and your grace that you lavish upon your people. Lord, your kindness that you show us the ways in which you chase after us. You have chased us down, and you continue to, even when we run. So, Lord, for those who are running, Lord, chase us down even now.
And let us return to you because you are kind and you are good to your people. Lord, may your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.